0: It's time to think bigger.
1: Elias Pedersen scores!
0: And think bolder.
1: Matthew Kachat, what a goal!
0: This is Rintoul and Sermon.
2: Another chance, great, save by Markstrom. There is shot, be bad. great,
1: saved by Tim Cole. On the Sportsnet Radio Network. What's going on? How's your Tuesday? Final day of August. Get involved in our conversation. we got a few coming your way this morning as the breaking news has changed the direction of the show. I'm Scott Rentoul, Jamie Dodd alongside me all week long. This is what I love about this business, Jamie, and it can be difficult to plan for, which can be uncomfortable at times. I went to bed last night. You went to bed last night, I assume, thinking okay, here's a couple of directions we could go with the show and maybe we can spin this into something else. And then something happens in this business, as has happened this morning, that changes things completely and makes it very obvious what you're going to start the show with. Yeah, it was uh, it was decided for us. The decision
2: taken out of our hands. We are talking, of course, about the news from the New England Patriots involving
1: Cam Newton this morning. Bill Belichick's been called a lot of things, Jamie. A lot of things. No one has ever accused him of being a coward. He has, nope. and he continues to make bold decisions. This one is bold today. Cam Newton, thank you very much. Your time in New England, as Boston would say, is over. And this was a surprise. This, like, even as
2: the quarterback battle really turned into a battle, a legitimate battle and a question about who would start in week one between Cam Newton and Mac Jones, I certainly didn't think it was going to lead to Cam Newton leaving the team, right? You thought, at the very least, they would want to keep him around in case Mac Jones stumbles out of the gate. But no, they're, they're saying, nope, we don't even want you as our backup. You are done here.
1: I said yesterday. So this is an early take the L admission for me. I said yesterday. I fully believe Cam Newton takes the opening snap for the New England Patriots. And then it depends on winning. And that's how much time it buys Mac Jones. Obviously, it's not going down that way. I was 100 percent incorrect on that. I, like you, did not see him getting cut the way he did today and there's a very simple part to this story Jamie and then there's an uncomfortable possibility that many people are going to question even if they aren't the biggest Cam Newton fans let's start with the very simple truth Mac Jones is a better fit for what the Patriots want to do offensively and and this is the part I didn't see coming and maybe they didn't see coming either he's ready to play sooner than everyone expected Yeah, that's the big surprise. And I think even
2: going back to the beginning of training camps and you know, as we got into the preseason, you heard a lot of discussion and certainly on this show about, you know, the five first round quarterbacks and will we see them all this year, which one of them will start the soonest. And I, was, I always thought Mac Jones would be at the bottom of that list, right? That, okay, yeah, he had a path to playing this year, but he was not going to be one of the first rookie quarterbacks that we saw in action. But he's been extremely impressive in training camp and preseason. There really hasn't been much to nitpick about his performance. And you're right, that's the biggest surprise. It's not just that he might be a better system fit, but that it's that he has come into an NFL environment, and looked so ready to play right away for the Patriots.
1: And there have been a lot of analysts along the way who have said, you know what, he looks better than I thought, but... It's different when the regular season comes around, and they're going to give him some insulation with Cam Newton. Even with Tom Brady, he had to wait, and it was a much different situation. They had Drew Bledsoe. He was viewed as a franchise quarterback. Cam Newton's at a different point of his career. He was once viewed as that. He obviously no longer holds that type of title, but Mac Jones got to where they wanted to go faster than they expected, I believe. I don't think this was the plan coming in. I don't think they just ran Cam Newton through the paces and said, yeah, we'll let you take a few training camp reps. I think Mac Jones got to a point faster than they thought with the way they want to run that offense and the way they brought players in, bringing in two tight ends. There were parts of that offense that were only going to be unlocked for Josh McDaniels and the rest of that offensive staff if Mac Jones eventually took over the starting role. And now he's going to be the guy from day one. That's the simple part of that And before we get to the complex part Let's hear from a former NFL quarterback Dan Orlovsky recently In fact in the last two hours Was on the Fan 590 in Toronto And had this to say about how he thinks Mac Jones will perform as a rookie I I just think he's going to be a stud I don't ever really kind of get into the the thought process of how NFL ready are you? Because mm-hmm.
3: I'm not necessarily when you take these guys in the first round or you name a young player as your starter and, and you envision him being the guy for the future, it should never be as, it, it, how NFL ready is he. It should always be does he has a chance to be really good? We, we want him to be really good for 10 plus years. And I always go for young players, young quarterbacks. Do they have a trait or skill in their day? survive because at first it's about surviving. That's just the reality and then they have the ability to thrive and there's different ways that you can survive at quarterback and I just believe that one his ability to operate the line of scrimmage, get them in and out of the right calls the right protections and then communicate it Two, how fast he plays. Now how did the guy play fast? I and I, I remember doing breakdowns of him coming out of college. I thought he was one of the best if not the best progression canceler I had seen coming out of college in years. And what I mean by that is, you know, you walk to line of scrimmage and there's lots of options on every play, but he does a really good job of them. That's not an One, two, and three really aren't options. Given what the defense is showing me right now, I'm really working four and five here, you know? And so I just think that thought process, and that's what people say, well, he processes really, that's what it means to process. And he does that so fast. And for a person who's not fast athletically, He plays incredibly fast. You've got the ability to do that. Um, He's going to be able to survive and thrive very quickly.
1: There's a lot going on here, not the least of which is the connection between the college coach of Mac Jones and his current head coach, Bill Belichick, Nick Saban, and Belichick are tight. We've known that for years. You can look through New England's roster. You will see a bunch of Alabama players, not the least of which is their starting tailback, or so I would think Damian Harris, who a lot of fantasy fans are probably familiar with already. There was a lot of trust in making the selection. There's even more trust now. Mac Jones, here you go. QB1.
2: It's it's remarkable. It's not something I anticipated at all when they picked Mac Jones in the in the first round. I thought it would be you know the classic kind of okay sit on the bench and develop for a year scenario. But you're right. That relationship between Belichick and Saban probably helped matters a lot. They knew exactly what they were getting. They knew what kind of offense he was going to be comfortable with, and obviously it meshes with what they want to do. And by the way, you know you bring up the Alabama connection. For so long, Alabama quarterbacks were a complete afterthought in the NFL. Now, all of a sudden, they got two starting in the same division with Mac Jones and Tua Tugavola. So Nick Saban has turned that program into not just a juggernaut, but one that turns out all of a sudden NFL-ready quarterbacks on a regular basis.
1: Those two are in the same quarterback stable alongside Jalen Hurts, who is expected to be the starter in Philadelphia on day one as well. So your point is very well made, and there are three pieces of evidence that will start on opening day that would suggest everything about the transformation of that program, the way it has operated under Nick Saban, like him or lump him, man, he's done a tremendous job of acquiring talent, turning out pros, All of those sorts of things. And we can talk about Mac Jones. And I want to talk about Cam Newton here as well and what the future holds for him. And hear from our listeners, 960-960-650-650. This is pretty shocking news around the National Football League today. And before we dive back into the football part of it, this bears mention because it is uncomfortable and it's a possibility and some people aren't going to like it. But the fact that Cam Newton was not vaccinated and missed five days last week, that very well may have been a factor in this decision. I'm not saying the only factor, Jamie. I'm not saying it's the overriding factor, but it's another factor to consider when it comes to making this when it came to making this decision in New England. Because if you were looking at this from simply a pragmatic point of view as an organization, and you're looking at what gives us the best chance to win, there is a decided competitive advantage now to have your team vaccinated. And while we usually talk about this with the player who's on the bubble to be on the 53-man roster or a practice roster guy, and do we want him around? Well, if these two guys are even, I guess we'll take the vaccinated player because he gives us a competitive advantage. We're talking about that with Cam Newton. This is a very real thing here. It it absolutely is, and it just comes down to
2: availability and the likelihood that you will be consistently and dependably available to go out on the field and take snaps for your team. And I think especially at the quarterback position, you know, when you're dealing with guys as different as Mac Jones and Cam Newton, you don't want to have to make an unexpected switch, you know, on the Friday before a Sunday game. That's not ideal. You do not want to have that unpredictability as part of your season. So, yeah, it's not the one deciding factor, but I absolutely believe it's a factor. And going forward for Cam Newton, I think it's going to be even more important, right? Because as you say, you know, it's one thing if your starting quarterback that you are locked in contractually, decides not to get vaccinated, your hands are kind of tied there, right? And we've seen that in Minnesota. We've seen that in Baltimore. But if you're casting around for a backup who you're you're kind of saying, well, I hope this guy doesn't have to play anyways – Then all of a sudden, you are absolutely taking vaccination status into consideration. And I've already seen people, you know, when this news started to come out, say, "Okay, would he make sense in Baltimore as a backup to Lamar Jackson? But. I mean, if you're Baltimore, then both of your quarterbacks who are, you know, sharing space and practicing together and in, in close contact with each other, neither of them are vaccinated. Is that really a situation that you would feel comfortable with? So it, it, it played, I, I'm positive that it played a role in the decision-making process in New England, and it's going to be even more important as Cam Newton tries to find a new team for the NFL season now.
1: Uh, Tyler Huntley lit it up in the back half of preseason game number three as well for Baltimore in week three. He was really good. to five touchdowns that he accounted for in that game so maybe that's not even a consideration for Baltimore right now with everything rolled in with perhaps the money and the reputation and by reputation I mean we're talking about a former league MVP we're talking about a former number one overall pick here when you bring a player like Cam Newton in there's an expectation your starter struggles and there's there's a night and day difference between the effectiveness of Lamar Lamar Jackson right now and that of Cam Newton but When you have that on your resume and you come in with that type of reputation, Jamie, there's going to be a different expectation than for a guy like Tyler Huntley. And you talk about the COVID situation, and Kirk Cousins has been in the news in recent weeks because of that in Minnesota and what it might mean there. Carson Wentz is out right now on the COVID list, not because he has COVID, not yet. We hope he doesn't get it. Don't hope anybody gets it. But Carson Wentz is out because he too is unvaccinated, and we know that because if you get placed on the COVID list in the NFL simply because you were in direct contact with someone who tested positive, that means you're unvaccinated. You right. have to test positive as a vaccinated player to be put on that list if you had direct contact. The rules are very, very different right now, and this is what it's about at some point. some point, it is about mitigating risk. Oh, that's exactly what it's about, right? It's it's about mitigating
2: risk and giving incentives for, for people to do what they can to mitigate those risks.
1: And Indy's interesting, because I've already seen Indianapolis thrown out there as a possible landing spot for Cam Newton, if there is one whatsoever. And throw that out to the listeners. I'll throw that out to you. Does Cam Newton play this season? Does Cam Newton play again, Jamie?
2: I think he lands somewhere for this year. I, I think someone will roll the dice in one way or another, but... It, it's it's not a slam dunk. It wouldn't stun me if he sits out for the entire season or if he's even done for his career. Now, I do think the fact that, you know, the interesting, the interesting thing about this quarterback battle is it's not as if Cam Newton came out and stunk the joint up in preseason, right? He looked good. He looked sharp. Now, maybe he didn't perform to Mac Jones's level, but this wasn't a case where you were kind of looking at it saying, oh my goodness, can this guy even play anymore? I think he showed teams he can play. So someone... We'll roll the
1: dice, but it's hard to find that perfect fit for Cam Newton. Indy, for example, has been thrown out there. Carson Wentz on the COVID list right now. Sam Ellinger got hurt on the weekend. He had looked good in the preseason, but he's out for at least a month right now. So if Carson Wentz doesn't get off that COVID list, and Colts fans are certainly hoping he does... All of a sudden, Jacob Eason, who's never taken A regular season snap, is your day one starter So that's an organization That might consider him. What about Denver Where Teddy Bridgewater is the starter And Drew Locke is the backup. Would they roll the dice On a Cam Newton? Houston Is interesting to me as well, Jamie Because Tyrod Taylor is the starter Deshaun Watson has a myriad Of problems going on in his Personal life that need to be taken Care of, and then in his professional life He's not backed off his trade demand, he's not even Practicing with the team. He basically basically is meetings and working out from home. They are keeping him away from everything to do with the football operation. If you determine in Houston he's never playing for your organization again and Tyrod Taylor is your starter, does it make sense to bring in a quarterback who also is a dual threat like a Cam Newton? Yeah, Houston was one that jumped to mind for me immediately, right? That could
2: use a talent upgrade, you know, in various spots on its roster. Obviously has the extremely unsettled, uncertain situation around Deshaun Watson. And the latest reporting there that we're seeing today is, you know, a trade is not imminent. They're going to start the season with Deshaun Watson technically on their roster. Although, as you say, completely apart from the team and all of its activities. So, yeah, Houston
1: was near the top of my list when I saw this news. John in Vancouver texts in, where's the Players Association on this? Are they aggressively backing both the vaccinated and non-vaccinated players? They are, but the Players Association has agreed to the protocols that are in place right now in the National Football League. They have signed off on this. The most recent piece of business is that they were going to have more testing in the NFL when it came to COVID. They signed off on that yesterday, I believe. But as far as the rules go and the differentiating between what you can do if you're vaccinated fully and what you are able to do if you have not received your full dose of vaccination, they are wildly different. And the PA has signed off on that. Yeah,
2: and I mean, overall, you know, to John's point, it's not you can't prevent teams from taking vaccinated, vaccination status into account, right, when they're making these roster decisions because – Of course they're going to take it into account. It affects your ability to be available to get out there on the field. So yeah, you know, in every player's individual situation, it might be a greater or lesser factor, but there's really nothing the PA can do, especially as you say, they've agreed to all these various COVID protocols. There's really nothing the PA can do to stop teams from, at least considering whether a player is
1: vaccinated or not when they're making these roster decisions. Interesting text coming in. Get yours in as well, 960-960-650-650. And this leads to where I'm about to go if Cam Newton doesn't play again or if he doesn't play any meaningful minutes again in the National Football League. What's Cam Newton's legacy as a player in this league? The first text that comes in, and I didn't even ask the question, Cam Newton is overhyped. He had one good year. That built his brand way too big. The next one, Carolina absolutely ruined him, making him run the ball 25 times a game. Your body can't take that kind of punishment. Jamie, your reaction to those two texts and your thoughts on Cam Newton as a player, his legacy. If this is where it ends, what is Cam Newton? It's a really – he has a really complicated
2: legacy. I think probably everyone can agree with that. I don't think it's fair at all to say, you know, oh, one good year, and then everyone just hyped him up after that. He was very effective. And what he did specifically as a rushing quarterback – I mean, he has 70 career rushing touchdowns, right? That's a ton for a quarterback. And it, it wasn't just about racking up the yards with him, as we see with some other quarterbacks. He had big yardage seasons as well, right, where he was up over 600, 700 yards. But he was so dangerous in short yarded situations in the red zone, right? He really changed how that how that offense could function in those situations, and he was extremely effective. So, I mean, it is a situation where when you look at his traditional passing metrics especially in the era he's playing in right where you know guys are thrown for 4,000 4,500 yards seemingly all the time he was never that kind of quarterback right that, that, that was not really what he was going to do he was effective as a passer but he was never going to put up the same kind of passing stats as some of his peers in this era but if you look at his overall effectiveness on the field I mean I think he has an extremely
1: positive legacy he was not anywhere near being the first dual-threat quarterback that we talked about. But here will be Cam Newton's legacy to me, Jamie, as we change the way we viewed quarterbacks and evaluated quarterbacks. Cam Newton is that guy. Forever it was, well, how many yards does he pass for? How many touchdowns does he throw? And how many interceptions slash turnovers are there? That's what we're looking for in a quarterback, and those are the metrics by which we will evaluate our quarterbacks. Cam Newton, though there was Michael Vick and Steve Young and Randall Cunningham, and I can go down the list of guys before Cam Newton, Cam Newton came in the era where people opened their minds up a little bit more and went, okay, we're going to have to rate effectiveness in different areas than we traditionally have, and Cam Newton will be the symbol of that to me, because by traditional metrics, yes, Cam Newton left something to be desired in the passing game, which is the first thing we think of when it comes to quarterbacks, but... There were times he was literally unstoppable yep. on the football field because of the sheer size and speed of the man who would truck linebackers and carry people down the field with him. Well, and that's
2: the thing that really sets Cam Newton apart for me is the size and the power that he brought as a as a dual threat quarterback, which, you know, you referenced someone like Michael Vick. He was all about the electric speed and the the agility and the ability to make people miss and dodge tackles. That wasn't Cam Newton. He was fast. He was just an incredible athlete. But it was the size and the strength and the power that he brought to the situation. And again, as I said, that's why as you say, sometimes they were unstoppable, it seemed like, in short-yarded situations, right? And Ron Rivera at the time in Carolina did a fantastic job, I thought, of designing certain offensive situations around Cam Newton's ability. He changed how that team functioned in those situations in a way we don't see quarterbacks do very often. And again, yeah, you're right. It's the strength, the size, the power, all
1: of it. So Greg was the person who texted that in about They ruined him by making him run that much. Same thing is going to happen to Lamar Jackson, says Greg. He's got another four years probably. So here's the difference, and here's how it can work and why it can't. So I don't disagree with the, hey, here's why at 31 years old, Cam Newton might not play much more. And the last couple of years leading into last season when there were different issues, they've been injury-plagued. Yes, The body overall can't take that kind of punishment. Some of that is on, okay, we're going to run, Cam Noon. Some of that is on the way that you run. Lamar Jackson, and I've said this for his first number of years in the league now, if Lamar Jackson can avoid hits better, and I thought he did that last season, Jamie. You can run. That's fine. But there comes a point where you have to say, I've won enough for this play. I need to get out of bounds, or I need to get down. I don't have to get every single yard possible here. It's already a win. Lamar Jackson, I thought, took a step toward that last year. I was really concerned the year before. And if you're a running quarterback who is going to use that repetitively as part of your arsenal, you need to be a good decision maker. Russell Wilson has always been that as a runner. Yes.
2: Russell Wilson is probably the best example of that, right? As somebody who uses his legs consistently, but is also incredibly durable. Incredibly durable. Ne- durable. Never picks up those knocks that keeps him out of a game because exactly of what you're saying. He knows when to get out of bounds. He knows when to slide and avoid that tackle. He's really, really good at it. It's an incredibly important skill. And, again, the interesting thing with Cam Newton, as we're saying, because he wasn't a dual-threat quarterback who relied on making guys miss and burning guys with his speed – you know, he had to play into contact, right? That that was his strength. That was what he was how he was going to win was by bowling guys over, was by winning through contact. So he kind of he didn't have a lot of choice. Now, there's always obviously instances where okay, you can step out of bounds a yard earlier or whatever, but in a lot of those scenarios, Cam Newton, more than other Russian quarterbacks, he kinda had to go in and take those hits.
1: Yep. I agree with that, and there is that Superman persona that he developed, and we all know how he did the tear off the shirt, and part of it was that as well. Cam Newton knew he could run guys over. It was effective for him, and as a professional athlete, Jamie, and one that is as gifted athletically as Cam Newton is at that size, and he is one of those players to me. That you know they're big, but then you see them in person, and you're still yeah. stunned at how big they are. I remember seeing him in person the first time, and I went, I knew you were ta- Like, I know what the dimensions are, but you come across even bigger than that. And there does come an invincibility with that. There really does, at least in your mind. Hey, I'm never going to get hurt. I'm just that guy. When you're used to being that dominant, and it's a great
2: point you make. I've never seen Cam Newton in person, but I can only imagine, especially because he's, one, a quarterback and, two, a dual threat quarterback, right, that it would still be shocking to see him out there, like, you know, a defensive end, right, when you actually see him in person, like, holy cow, you're that big? No wonder nobody can stop you.
1: It's not the only story of the day, but right now it's the biggest story of the day. Cam Newton out in New England. It's leading anybody's sports conversation right now. We'll continue to have that conversation throughout the show. Plenty more for us to dip into, but we will talk some football. Might sneak a little baseball in, but we'll focus football first and foremost with Dieter Curtenbach, our friend from just down the coast in the Bay Area, next right here on Rintoul & Sermon with Jamie Dodd.
0: Now back to Rintoul &
4: Sermon.
1: There are a bunch of other things to talk about, but our texters have really picked up on this. So I want to keep this conversation going, Jamie. And another aspect of it is the they ruined Cam Newton in Carolina. One of our texters, unsigned. Please sign your texts, whether you're at 960-960 or 650-650. says, it's not Carolina that ruined Cam. It was Riverboat Ron, as in Ron Rivera. It was his scheme for Cam to run the ball all the time. Jamie, it's also the scheme that made Cam Newton at one point unstoppable, took a team to the Super Bowl, heavy favorite, ultimately lost to Peyton Manning and the Denver Broncos. Another former MVP who was number one overall that got cut by his team because of injury reasons, but I digress. We can have that conversation later in the show. That same scheme made Cam Newton virtually unstoppable. It got him an MVP award. It got them this close to what everybody wanted, which was a Super Bowl in Carolina.
2: And... You can always look and say, okay, could they have toned it down a little bit? Sure. But in general, you're right. If you weren't using Cam Newton that way, you were leaving wins on the field, right? And You just weren't going to get the most out of your number one overall franchise quarterback. Again, there's always a balance to be struck, right? How much you leave in the tank versus how much you're going all out in the regular season with it. But that was Cam Newton's strength as a quarterback. That was what made him special. So you had to use it on a regular basis or else you just weren't going to get the most out of the player.
1: And there will be some who say, well, if you developed Cam more as a pocket passer for the majority of his career and scaled back the running, then there would be more longevity. And this is an interesting balance to strike. As a coach, Jamie, what are you trying to do? You're trying to win. And what's your player trying to do? He's trying to win, and there's a part of that that's development. But results-oriented business like the National Football League, they measure it in Ws. And so what are you going to do yeah, you want to have a quarterback to be there for a decade plus, but you're also trying to win as many games possible. And there comes this breaking point. Was Cam Newton never the – was he a quarterback who was never going to develop every single asset of his, aspect of his passing game? Or was he a quarterback that, because of the way they used him, never got to fully unleash that part, or they never put quite the right weapons around him? It's chicken-egg. We can debate that for all time. And then you're right. I mean, let's say
2: you do scale back the running and try to develop him more as a passer. Well, okay, maybe Carolina gets a few more years out of him. Maybe Cam Newton's career is extended by a couple of seasons, but do you get to the Super Bowl with him? Does he win an MVP? Does he reach the heights he did, right? And I think, you know, for the team, pretty clearly, they they did what was best for the franchise, but even for the player, I suspect you might take that trade, right? A slightly shorter career, in exchange for getting an MVP and getting the chance to play in a Super Bowl.
1: Yeah, and that's a fair question to ask. And I'm guessing, knowing Cam Newton, and we had one come in earlier from Doug who said, look, Cam Newton isn't receptive to criticism when things don't go his way. He pouts, his COVID problem is an example, detriment to team chemistry. That's why his time in New England was short-lived. I think the COVID conversation is a part of this i don't think it's the biggest part of it if cam newton wildly performed mac outperformed mac jones yeah. in the preseason cam newton would still be there
2: yes I, I 100% agree with that it it makes it less appealing to keep somebody on as a backup but if there was a massive gap between what we were seeing from newton and jones then it probably wouldn't matter
1: no it probably wouldn't matter and to me that goes back to the pride thing well if you ask cam newton would you trade it for a longer no chance he would no chance MVP getting to the Super Bowl. Yeah. He wouldn't trade that for being healthy for another 4 years in the league. This is a guy who's accomplished a lot. This is a guy who's made a boatload of money in yep. the National Football League as well. He I mean Cam Newton quite frankly became a brand. Yeah, oh, he was a huge brand. He was one of the biggest stars
2: in the league, of course. Obviously, when you're talking about a guy who won MVP, you're right, it's not like it's as if he needs the longevity to pad his bank account. You know, he did very well for himself in the course of his NFL career.
1: Cam Newton would be a good fit with the Cowboys, says Harmon. I don't see that. Dak Prescott runs the offense in an entirely different way than than Cam Newton runs an offense. They just made their quarterback cuts this morning. There was a little bit of a surprise to some that Garrett Gilbert was cut there today. They're not bringing him in. They got too much money in a bunch of different places. They're not bringing Cam Newton to Dallas, Jamie. No, I don't see that as a fit nor do I. Dieter Kurtenbach joins us today. Our good friend from the Bay Area News Group. And this isn't the news I thought we'd lead with, but we're going to talk some Cam Newton today, Dieter.
0: Hey, yeah, let's make it happen. Uh, Any time that we can talk about a former MVP who is now partially disgraced. I mean, it it feels... it feels heavier than just a, a player kind of on the back end of his career getting cut, right?
1: It certainly does. And there's a bigger conversation and there's a legacy conversation. And yet the part that should probably lead it is Mac Jones. Is he far better than you expect that he would be at this point?
5: Uh,
0: no, no. He, he was a very polished quarterback. Mac Jones' thing has always been very high floor, very low ceiling, right? And um, when, from my personal standpoint, having dealt with sort of Mac Jones, the prospect, as somebody who covers the San Francisco 49ers, it was apparent. I I think Mac Jones is a good quarterback. I I don't think you're going to be able to win a Super Bowl with Mac Jones, uh, but you might be able to be a competent NFL team with Mac Jones. And what you're seeing now, it's not going to get that much better. But what you're seeing now is good. Like, he's a starting caliber quarterback. And uh, you put the pieces around him. Uh, which he certainly had better at Bama relative to his peers than he does with the Patriots, but you put good pieces around him, and he certainly has good coaching working with him. He, he can, he can get the job done. It, it was just a bit of redundancy. If, if he was selected at number three overall, because what is he that Jimmy Garoppolo is not like, and, and vice versa, they're they're sort, somewhat of the same player. Uh, and let's take note that the 49ers who, had that same player, right? They had an older, more experienced version of a Mac Jones, decided that they needed to trade away three first-round picks to go get somebody who maybe plays a bit more of a progressive, modern style at like quarterback and trade limbs.
1: And I do want to get into that conversation about San Francisco (laughs) and looking into the crystal ball of how they're going to utilize those two quarterbacks. And yes, there's a Trey Lance finger injury right now that might prevent them from doing that in week one. We will all wait and see, but sticking with new England for a second here, how much of a factor do you personally believe Cam Newton, not being vaccinated, being on the COVID list last week played in this decision?
0: It's massive. I mean, it's not, it's not the whole story, right? Like there had to have been build up, but that was, that was the watershed moment, right? Uh, with, with, all freedom comes responsibility. Uh, Cam Newton exercised his freedom to not be vaccinated, but decided not to take on the responsibility. And he missed a week of practice, which Bill Belichick wasn't going to take too kindly to in the first place because quarterback needs to be the leader needs to be the coach on the field, all that stuff. And how can you respect the leader who's going to miss a week of practice because he didn't want to do something that everyone else pretty much has already done. Um, on top of that, then Mac Jones had a really good week in camp by all accounts, and he looked good in the preseason throughout. And that was that was the opening that Mac Jones needed to just solidify, right? Now that you take Cam Newton out of the equation, you don't see Cam Newton, you have to just visualize a world with Mac Jones. And the Patriots had that week, and they thought, this could work. This is fine. And let's get rid of Cam Newton, who had proven – In this case, and I I think it's ridiculous because Cam has had to carry a lot of these terms unfairly, I believe, throughout his career. But in this case, I do think it applies. Uh, Cam Newton was a distraction to the team. Cam Newton wasn't about the team. He wasn't all in on the team. And they're like, why would we carry around a guy who's barely able to beat out Mac Jones who isn't all the way in? Uh, He is not helping us. And, in fact, he hindered us. We get rid of guys who hinder us here in New England. Uh, Some places might have kept him. Some places might have thought, oh, this will be good for season tickets. The New England Patriots are sure as hell not one of those places. Bill Belichick doesn't play like that. And Cam Newton decided to play, and he got burned.
2: And, and, you know, Dieter, as you say, if he had been able to outplay Mac Jones significantly, it wouldn't have mattered, right? They would have kept him around in all likelihood, despite totally. his vaccination status. But now as he goes to try to find another team, I, I think his vaccination status is going to be even more important, right? Because at this stage of the season, if you're bringing him in for a to battle for a spot, or if you're bringing him as a backup, you know, backup quarter, quarterbacks can't afford to be distractions, as you say, in a way that clear-cut starting quarterbacks can. One
0: thousand percent. And listen, we we see what's happening, at least down here in the states with with COVID. And there are going to be people who are unvaccinated and there are going to be people who have breakthrough infections. And uh, when you are not vaccinated, you are subject to some pretty stringent guidelines as it pertains to close contact and what that requires you to do, which it just takes you out for a week. Right. And Cam Newton, if you were to come in and be a backup for anybody, now he has to live in a bubble. Right. Like he's not going to you're not getting any of the positives of Cam Newton, which are that, you know, people really like him in the locker room. He has a big positive energy that maybe some teams right now are looking at and say, hey, we need some more juice. We need some more vibes in here. Uh, Let's go get a guy like Cam Newton who brings that kind of stuff but you can't really have him out mingling and doing things that you would expect the backup quarterback to do. Uh, I I think he, I think he has really screwed himself over in in a serious way in the sense that, yeah, you need to make sure that the backup quarterback is healthy, right? Like you're putting the starting quarterback out there. You're going out and getting a, a backup with some, with some clout with an MVP trophy in Cam Newton. You need to make sure that he's going to be available. And if you can't guarantee that you're healthy uh, or if you're going to be just straight up up available, no one's going to sign you. You're the backup. Like, we're not going to take a risk with a backup. And Cam Newton right now is a straight up risk. A straight up risk.
2: With all that in mind, I mean, are there any landing spots that you see as potential fits or teams that might actually be willing to take that risk on Cam Newton?
0: No, not right now. I mean, legitimately not right now. If the Patriots have kind of put the, uh, put the kibosh on them, that, that's not going to look good across the NFL. If, if Bill Belichick has not given him sort of the anointment of this guy's worth the trouble, uh, that's going to be a problem. People look to New England for sort of moral leadership in this football game. People look to Bill Belichick as the guy who knows what he's doing above all else. And while that might not necessarily be true – uh, it's still the case, and I just think that the tiebreaker is always going to go to the guy who isn't going to get noticed, who isn't going to create any problems whatsoever, isn't going to type in a really weird font all the time on Instagram. Like they're just <laughs> not, they're just not going to go that route. Like it, it, it's going to require a team to really, really, really need a very specific kind of player, and even then, I'm not sure if Cam Newton qualifies as. That kind of player. So if he does sign with somebody and and in all likelihood, he will, because desperation will will start seeping in in some places here in the the coming weeks. Um, If he does sign someplace, it's going to be after after a bit of a stretch of him sitting around and kind of wondering what the hell he just did to himself.
2: Well, and as you say, like there's still a good chance that he does play in the NFL at some point this year. So I don't want to suggest this is the end of the road for Cam Newton. Yeah. But, you know, it might be the end of the road for him as a, as a clear-cut number one starting quarterback mm-hmm. in the NFL. And, and with that in mind, you know, he's had such a fascinating career. We were kicking this around a little bit earlier in this show. What would yeah. you say Cam Newton's legacy
0: as an NFL quarterback is? I mean, just the, the, one of the most brilliant players, but like a supernova, burned out really fast. Um, you just think about sort of the Cam Newton legacy on the whole, right? I mean, are there five more dominant collegiate players in, in the history of the college game than Cam Newton? I, I'd be hard pressed. I mean, you'd have to be going back to like the twenties and the thirties to really find some folks who were that much better going back to Jim Thorpe and stuff. What he did for Auburn that one season was uh, baffling. I mean, he made Gene Chiswick a national championship winning head coach. That just doesn't happen under <laughs> normal circumstances. And then, and then for him to take a, a one and fifteen team in the Carolina Panthers and in a very short period of time, I believe still on his rookie contract, turn them into a fifteen and one team, an absolute juggernaut, make himself the MVP, and get two fumbles away from winning the Super Bowl. I was at that Super Bowl. That Super Bowl was a mess. Um, but, you know, to get them into the Super Bowl and to, to really contend for a championship was something. But he played a, a style of football and that that was a little bit ahead of its time. If he was playing as a young man today, um, he would have stood a better chance of having his body maintained for a little bit longer. It wouldn't have been a a super long-term thing, but it would have been a little bit longer, just the way the quarterback is protected these days, uh, the way that you can and cannot hit and all the nuanced rules that show up once or twice a year. uh, Those would have helped him in a big way, but he was sort of at the end of one era of football and, by the time he got into the beginning of this era of football, he was already too banged up to to make a serious difference. His shoulders crab meat. Um, his legs don't have the same juice they once had. This is all natural. It's a reminder of how brutal this sport is. But uh, if we're talking about all-time peaks and all-time great talents, I do think that we have to have Cam Newton in that conversation when it's all said and done. And, and nothing that happens from here on out is is really going to affect that. He was He was a truly, truly special player. And uh, I, I hope that that's how he's remembered because, man, there was again there there he <laughs> was fun as hell to watch. So uh, and really kind of a one one of one, and those are the kind of players that I like to
1: watch. Lady Gaga doing the national anthem at Super Bowl Fifty was tremendous. I don't know what you're talking about. That game being a mess. <laughs>
0: I was writing from that game on the concourse of Levi's Stadium because uh, it was such a mismanaged mess. Uh, I, I've, done, I've, been, I've been able to do a few Super Bowls. Not one of them has seemingly gone uh, well. Uh, I'll give my, Maybe the Miami one went okay. But, uh, yeah, I just remember that it was stuck in traffic for three hours coming down from San Francisco because nobody decided to tell the NFL that San Jose and San Francisco are an hour apart on a, on a good day. Uh, just a hot mess. Just a hot mess of a game. A hot mess of a, an event, and uh, Cam Newton had the hottest mess of them all, deciding not to jump on a fumble, which I hope is not his legacy, but will be part of that conversation.
1: Well, and I think the biggest hot mess might have been Cam Newton separated from the winning team doing his interview. I happened to be there covering it as well, and Cam oh, Newton right, being yeah. separated by a curtain. Well. He's being asked things while the other team's <laughs> celebrating, like through a curtain. It was bizarre, but I digress. A D- weird day. Dieter Kurtenbach of the Bay Area News Group joining us here today on Rent Tool and Sermon with Jamie Dot. I want to ask you about a situation you are much closer to as a reporter and journalist that is, the San Francisco 49ers. Mac Jones, Trevor Lawrence, Zach Wilson, they're starting from day one. They want Justin Fields to start next week, but that's probably not going to happen. What about Jimmy Garoppolo and Trey Lance? How is this going to work? Was that simply, hey, you got to prepare for everything, but we're going to go more conventional in week one? What do you make of what the 49ers are doing with their pivots?
0: No, I think that they're going to end up doing a, a really funky quarterback rotation, which is going to be truly fascinating. I think that they want to be Drew Brees and Taysom Hill on steroids. And I think they can pull it off. I think Kyle Shanahan's lineage – with his dad of course being Mike Shanahan in the zone blocking scheme and that being a run first team to the core. I mean, it's in his blood to be a run first team as we saw in the 2019 playoffs. And then on top of that, having a quarterback whose arm you don't trust versus a quarterback whose decision-making is a rookie. You don't trust yet. Uh, I think that the Niners are going to try to run it early, often, and almost exclusively if they can. And by, taking out Garoppolo on certain downs and putting in Lance. And uh, by the way, doing that transition, rapid fire, like you're bringing in a new wide receiver. Um, By doing that, I think that they actually have a chance to run the ball like 40, 50 times a game. I think that this, they want to be a speed option team. I think that they want to go in the realm of what the Baltimore Ravens have done with Lamar Jackson. I think they want to go and kind of extend extend the Robert Griffin III Washington teams from 2012 into this new era where that kind of play I think has a better chance of succeeding again just given the rules that we kind of laid out there with the Cam Newton thing Um, I, I don't think I don't think that that was an overstatement at all from from week three of the the preseason against the Raiders I think that was a declaration of intent and a clear tell to every defensive coordinator out there, here's what we're doing. And by the way, I know nine ways to add on to this, which we saw in Washington. I've been watching a lot of Washington tape lately from 2012, so God help me. But uh, (laughs) they'll throw the bubble screen on top of that. They'll start doing RPOs on top of that. And it will give Lance the reps that he needs to catch up to the speed of the NFL game while also giving the 49ers their best chance of winning Because Garoppolo does provide that in certain circumstances and certain downs and and distances. So uh, I, I I think that we're about to see something really interesting and really funky, and I couldn't be more excited for it.
1: It's a fascinating proposition as a football fan, and I happen to be a Niners fan. I am super intrigued. I would suggest, though, that if we harken back to 2012, if Trey Lance gets a knee injury and he's hobbling around on a crappy field at the end of a playoff game, don't leave him in this time.
0: Yeah, yeah. I I, I will say this about the the 2012 Niners and uh, Colin Kaepernick and the read option stuff. It is jarring. And and obviously Greg Roman uh, now, you know, having put his stamp on the Baltimore system and, and it was just kind of that, that system being so prevalent in a couple of places around the league. But uh, it was so primitive compared to kind of what we see now. And this is the natural progression of the high school game leaking into the college game, which now leaks into the pros, because at some point a coach decides, why am I going to try to force a quarterback that I just drafted to play our style? Why don't we just play his style? We know he's good. We drafted him in the first round. Let's just lean into that. Like we can adapt that we don't want to have to make him adapt because he might not be able to. And I know we can um, <laughs> easy for me to say uh, I, it is, it is going to be really, really interesting. And I, I think that um, listen, they went up against the third string Raiders defense. So first string Raiders defense is easy enough. God only knows what the third string is. I mean, these guys are going to be playing in the indoor football league. I think they've already been cut. In fact, I think they left him in Santa Clara, for travel purposes, but, um, it's the, the spaces that a guy like Raheem Mostert, the running back was able to get were laughable. I mean, it was, it was almost comical how easy it was to run in that preseason game and they get the lions in week one. I mean, I, I, if Lance's fingertip, which is apparently chipped and is going to keep him out of practice for a week, uh, if he's capable of, of practicing in the days preceding the game against the lions, uh, and doing kind of what it is we saw in that preseason game on Sunday, I mean, they might go for 300 rushing yards. It's just, it's, just, it's not fair. It's not fair. They are having they were able to run the ball as well as any team in the NFL when Jimmy Garoppolo's only job was handed off. He didn't have to be accounted for. What happens when you have to account for Trey Lance, who might not have the best combine stats, but is a great runner? It, 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 the defenses don't know what to do. And, oh, by the way, this is before you even enter the pass of the football into the equation. I I think uh, I don't know what it means for rookie of the year odds and all that stuff, but I I think this could be really, really fun. If you like watching the Baltimore Ravens, which if if you don't, I don't know how you really enjoy football. Um, If you enjoy watching them, I think that you're going to enjoy watching the San Francisco 49ers as much as any team in the NFL this year.
2: Hey Dieter, just a few more minutes left here. I wanted to get your take on some some breaking news this morning out of the PGA Tour, which is specifically that <laughs> yelling Brooksy at Bryson DeChambeau is now going to qualify as harassing behavior, which means if you do it as a fan at an event, you could be booted from the event. What do you make of this rule and also just the entire situation that has developed between Kepka, DeChambeau and really between the fans and DeChambeau on tour now?
0: Well, I mean, Bryson, <laughs> how do I, how do I put this in a way that I can say on the radio? Um, <laughs> Bryson has brought so much of this on himself. All Bryson seems to want is attention, but only attention that is sort of uh brand appropriate, right? Only positive attention. And it's like, buddy, you don't get to choose what kind of attention you get when you're out here. Again, forgive the word you're whoring for attention all day, every day. Uh, the Brooks Brooks has his own thing going on. Brooks is an interesting cat in and of itself. He's somewhat of an anti-hero, uh, but just because he's calling out the nonsense of Bryson on a day in day out basis, he's now the hero. And for the PGA tour to say that, you know, this targeted harassment of calling him Brooksy, which is all in good fun because this guy takes himself so damn seriously, Bryson DeChambeau, that it, it, you know, it gets under his skin. For that to be like now an official appointment thing is so laughable and just makes me want to go out to a PGA Tour course and yell "Brooksy!" because if they think it's going to stop it, I, this is not how you stop it. This is the, I, I don't think I've ever been a bully. I hope I've never been a bully in my life. I, I feel like I've been bullied enough, though, to have uh, have some fairly interesting takes on it. Like This is how you empower bullies. And I don't mind being a bully in this situation for Bryson DeChambeau because this is, I, I, I you know, we're, we're going to talk about mental health and all this stuff, and maybe I'm coming across as really callous and unfair and, you know, unwoke or whatever. But, like, dude, you're a professional golfer. The, it, the situation at a professional golf course couldn't be more catered to you in all ways you have to be quiet the whole time there's no you know apparently the pga tour will protect any word that comes out of a patron's mouth uh for for this to come to fruition is just laughable it's just absolutely laughable and so childish and just get the hell out of here man if he can't handle the heat he's got to get out of the kitchen i mean that that just goes back to you know third grade logic which is apparently where we're at everything is third grade And you know what? Fine. I'm going to embrace it. And again, I hope I get to get out maybe wherever Brooks is or Brooks and uh, Bryson are next. I'm I'm getting a flight and I'm going and yelling "Brooksy," and seeing how long I can I can stay. And I think there's going to be a lot more people like me,
1: too. I think you're right that it's not going to stop it. I do think the guy who yelled at him after he walked by after the six hole playoff on Sunday, which was tremendous theater and it was great. decided to take the cheap shot like that guy also deserved a punch in the mouth. Yeah, <laughs> maybe you know.
5: But
0: like, I I get that. At the same time, like, what what does Bryson thinks? What does he think he does for a living? Like, he's an entertainer. Like these these sports are entertainment, and uh, you know, you see the situation with the Mets booing their own fans, and now you know Bryson, it, a cheap shot. Like, it, it's a ribbing. It, it, what is he, what is he saying? He's not saying anything about his mother. Like, there's nothing. Seriously, foul coming out of anybody's mouth. It's a it's a joke. It's a ribbing, and the guy can't take it. And that's sad in and of itself. But again, what what does he think he do? what does he think he does for a living? He, he I, I'm sure he loved the year. And by the way, he won a major. Um, there were no fans around, but tough break. Those those fans pay your salary. Like if there are no fans around, I understand that they had tournaments for a year. That would not have continued. That would not have been the way that he gets, you know, $40 million a year from Puma and Rocket Mortgage or whoever the hell else wants to associate with that guy. Like, it, the fans are the reason he has it. And the fans are there as part of the entertainment. And, yeah, do they go over the line a little bit? Yeah, but there's also a different code of conduct. It's not like a movie where you can't talk during the middle of it. Um, I, I just why, – why, why are we out here protecting Bryson DeChambeau? From what? From, from calling him Brooksy because it's a funny it's a funny joke, like grow up, like get over it. Uh, get over yourself for half a second because anybody else <laughs> anybody else who, who's ever gotten called a, a nickname, I mean, my name's Dieter Kurtenbach. I'm six foot nine and have been fat my whole life. Like I'm pretty familiar with how to handle some chunky nicknames and, and stuff that you don't want to be here. You lean into it. And if you leaned into it, it stops being funny. Uh, and this guy just consistently, you know, bashes back at it. And he's never going to get rid of it because he takes himself so damn seriously. And honestly, I don't mind taking a guy like that down a notch every now
1: and again. He covers the Niners, the Giants, and Bryson on a regular basis because he's such a big <laughs> fan. He is Dieter Kürtenbach. Thank you, man. I always appreciate the conversation. Thanks for picking up the phone again today. <laughs>
0: Anytime. I, I have to go bully some children down the <laughs> <laughs> Okay.
1: See you later, Dieter. Later, guys. That is Dieter Kürtenbach. He presents the other side to the story. I do agree with the sense of if you put this out there even further as the PGA has, and they obviously feel they need to protect DeChambeau a little bit more here, Jamie, it's going to fuel more people to do it. I agree with that. It's like the teacher getting up and
2: bringing you to the front of the class and making an announcement about how everyone has to stop bullying you, right? It's, it's okay, the sentiment is nice and you want people to stop bullying that child, but is that the best way to accomplish it, right? By putting so much attention and and calling it out and making you the focal point of it. So I, I totally agree with that point. I, I agree with what some of Dieter is saying there, right, which is ultimately is yelling someone another golfer's name does that qualify as bullying as her as harassment? But I also agree with what you're saying, which is that certain fans have taken it too far. And I don't know what the ultimate solution is, but I do agree that going this far and publicly coming out and saying, you know, no, 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 don't yell Brooksy at Bryson. That's probably not going to remedy the situation.
1: That's just part of the conversation moving forward. A whole lot to get into on what is a gold medal Tuesday as well. It's Rintoul and sermon with Jamie Dodd.
0: You're listening to Rintoul and sermon
1: you like a little new rock? Is that your jam? If so, stay plugged in with the new rock playlist on Apple Music. It's always being updated with the best new bands and new rock. And you can add tracks right to your library for offline listening. Listen to the new rock playlist on Apple Music. It's Scott Rental and Jamie Dodd, who is in for Karen Sermon all week long. You can text us at any time during the course of the show, nine sixty nine sixty or 650-650. This person texted in. Bryson DeChambeau. This came out this morning. Jamie, you asked our last guest, Dieter Kurtenbach, about it. And the PGA has made it official. The PGA has said this morning, as you alluded to, yelling or saying Brooksy to Bryson DeChambeau will now be considered disrespectful and from now on can result in expulsion from a tournament. This is directly from Commissioner Jay Monaghan. It's become an issue of being disrespectful to the players And the game, I'm not sure it's the right tact. In fact, I don't think it is. I don't think it's going to curb all of the behavior. I think people are going to try to get away with it. We had this this response, Jamie, just before I get your opinion on this and not. Fans should be allowed to joke and call players' names as long as it's not racist or demeaning. Now, to your point, texter, unsigned text, the PGA feels that's demeaning. We can quibble on that or not. Come on, Scott, says the texter, a punch in the face for a Brooksy. It was the timing of what happened at the end on Sunday that, to me, deserved a punch in the face. That's what it was. And it was akin, different situation, but, Jamie, you want to go way back in time? It was akin to Jim Rome, who had Jim Everett, quarterback of the then L.A. Rams, on with him, and Jim Rome had joked for years calling Jim Everett Chris Everett with regard to his quarterback competency in the NFL. And at the time, face-to-face, Jim Everett said, I know you do that. I don't like it. It's disrespectful. Don't do it again. And Rome basically said, or else what? And he said, or else you'll find out. And, again, I'm paraphrasing here. Rome did it. He poked the bear in that moment. And Jim Everett got up and went after him. And it was the timing of it more than anything else because there were plenty of fans who did the Brooksy thing all through the BMW tournament. But this was after a six-hole playoff. Tough moment where he misses a pot. It was sensational theater. And to me as a sports fan, I'm not a Bryson guy at all. But as a sports fan, those two players put on an incredible show that should have been applauded. And in that moment where a guy's just lost in a heartbreaking playoff and shot the best score ever in a tournament that doesn't win you the tournament... Somebody waited until he was by, not so he could see him face-to-face, and then tried to take the shot then. It was timing as opposed to what was actually said. Yeah, and
2: I think the context is different, too, being part of a big gallery that's kind of removed from the players a little bit. You know, you're off on the sidelines when they're on the fairway or the green. So it doesn't feel as personal as in your and in your face as that moment did, as you explained, right? You know, Bryson DeChambeau's by himself. He's walking up the path to the clubhouse. He's just come off this really tough defeat. And this person, kind of isolated, feels like they have an opportunity to really needle him. So I, I do think the context is different. You know, did Deshamba overreact in that moment? I don't know, right? Again, there's obviously a lot of emotion going on, a lot of frustration for him in that moment as well. I do think ultimately, though, that... Yeah, the PGA—they're probably not going to be able to enforce this, and they're just going to encourage people. Even if they can enforce it, they're going to encourage fans to find other ways to get under Bryson DeChambeau's skin, right? Like that's what this is going to do. It's not going to—it's not going to make all PGA fans who go to events step back and say, "Ah, you know what? We should really lay off him a little bit." It's going to—it's going to make them say, "Okay, what else can we do to tick
1: this guy off?" Ron the Barista says, get over it, Scott. He invites those barbs with his terrible attitude. I I would say for the most part, that's correct. I, to me, it's the context of that particular one. And you can say something and still deserve a punch in the face. Maybe not literally, but figuratively. And DeChambeau, whirled around, I say this again, is not a Bryson guy, but I defend him in that situation. Like, let the guy just have his moment before you go after yeah. him. And it's also the fact to me that it was ah wait till his back turned, but I know he can still hear me. But I don't want to do it when he's right here face to face with me because ooh, what if something happens? And I'm guessing, maybe I'm wrong here, Jamie, but I'm guessing the fan in question was probably a little smaller than beefed up Bryce. Yes, I would I
2: would say that's a safe bet. Probably did not like his odds if it did come to fisticuffs.
1: Jay from Burnaby says, in related news, the NHL has released news that Vancouver fans will not be able to boo Duncan Keith during games. (laughs) Come on. Look, I think the ruling by the PGA smacks of this. It's going to invite more of this. There's a better way to work through it, in my opinion, than what the PGA has done here. They want to back their player. They want to be equal to everybody across the board. And right now, it does seem to be at a tipping point with, with Bryson DeChambeau and despite what many of the opinions might be, look, I've listened to a lot of golf analysts over the last couple of days who have been critical of him and have been critical of his attitude, and most of them have said, we're getting to a point where it's jumped the shark a little bit. It needs to be scaled back. That's what the PGA is attempting to do. I don't think it's going to work, though. Yeah, I feel
2: like they're maybe just fanning the flames a little bit. Uh, Josh Josh in Chestermere from the uh, Calgary 960-960 inbox texts in, I want the European Ryder Cup team to get Brooksy embroidered on their shirts and hats now. That's another good point. There's a big event coming up. I don't think the European team is going to go that far. But, and I mean, first of all, thank goodness that this this edition of the Ryder Cup is in uh, the United States, right? Because if it was over in England, you can only imagine what the gallery would have to say uh, about Bryson DeChambeau at the event.
1: I do agree with Dieter's point about you gotta lean into it and I imagine DeChambo's comeback here would be I've tried that and it hasn't yeah. worked. You've seen a number of interviews, you've seen him asked about it at the podium and they hey, what if you got paired with Brooks Kept? He said, Oh I'd love it, that'd be great. I wouldn't mind it whatsoever. I think it'd be awesome. So He probably believes, Jamie, that he's leaned into it enough and that hasn't got the desired response and that the behavior persists. So now he's looking for an outlet. I do think it's somewhat of an immature way to approach it for him. But I also believe that fan behavior can cross the line. I think that was a pot shot in a bad moment and the fan, to me, had crossed the line in that moment.
2: Yeah. And I kind of alluded to this on the show yesterday. You know, Ultimately, I you're right. The best way to diffuse this would have been to lean into it immediately and have some fun of it. He did try to do that, but that's easier said than done, right? And not everyone has that personality where they're really comfortable embracing some sort of criticism like that publicly and having some fun with that and turning it around and turning it into a joke. And I, I think it's pretty clear that Bryson doesn't have that kind of attitude and doesn't have that kind of personality. And it makes it really difficult because when it started, you know, I it seemed like just this kind of fun rivalry. And yeah, there was real, you know, distaste there, but it was also something kind of different for golf and something the fans could have some fun with. Now it it doesn't seem as much fun. It seems more about punishing Bryson DeChambeau, but I don't know. It's such a tricky issue because at the same time, all the you know, you can look at it and say, well, all they're doing is yelling his rival's name, right? They're not being you know, they're not crossing a, per, a line of personal attacks. They're not, you know, being offensive, using bigoted language, anything like that. It seems like it should be, you know, pretty pretty harmless,
1: but it also doesn't quite feel like that way when you see it in in practice. What's at the end of this, really? If we if we dig down a little, Bryson DeChambeau wants to be embraced, as most of us do. Most people want to be liked, and it's pretty clear he wants to be embraced and he wants to be celebrated for his excellence on the golf course and for some of the innovative ways that he's approached the game. And that's not what he's getting. And that's where this comes from. I'm going to compare him to another athlete who's in a different realm, but has leaned into it in recent years. And that's Tom Brady. Tom Brady was once Mr. Popular Teflon, nothing could touch him Everybody loved him, and then he and the Patriots Won so much, and they won in ways That a lot of people will still never reconcile And will never get over And they will blame Brady for that, and there are some who Hang on to Deflategate, and at some point In the last two or three years, Jamie Brady just leaned into it, he went, okay yep, You guys hate the Patriots, you hate me And so, I'm gonna be The guy that you wanna hate, and he started Putting out the social videos, and it's Been really, really good, actually Well, just the magic of getting away from Bill
2: Belichick and the Patriots. I think that has helped a lot, right? That he's no longer associated with the evil empire of the New England Patriots, even though he's still winning in Tampa Bay. But you're right. He he adjusted his approach to how he presents himself as well, right? And he did that through social media. He did that through his interviews, all of that. I do think a big part of it was separating himself from the
1: Patriots, but he found a way to reinvent himself in public. Let's get to what they're saying. we got plenty to get to. Let's go. So we had this text come in, Bryson couldn't handle New York sports fan, boo-hoo, jackals, that's a happy Gilmore reference, go to New York, experience for yourself, it's awesome, Deshambo needs to grow up, and the overbearing parent PGA should encourage him to do so, all comedy really, I like Dieter's take, good interview, Jay in East Van, we're going to bring New York into this because we talked about this situation, Jamie, yesterday in relation to what's happening between the Mets and their own fans, forget about the others.
2: Yeah, there's an, another big uh, fan backlash or athlete versus fan story.
1: And you're right. It's it's directed at people who should theoretically be cheering for the team to win. And the Mets have been in the tank for the most part for the last little while. They finally get something good that happens the other day. And when they do, they decide, decide to show up the fans, or at least Javi has decided to show up the fans. Obviously, it had bothered them that their own fans were booing them and getting on their case. And so Javi Baez, he gives the fans the thumbs down. He explained it after the game. He said, look, we're supposed to win together and lose together, and if you guys are going to do this to us, well, we're going to kind of throw it back in your face. Again, me paraphrasing here. Mets organization backed the fans. They didn't condone Baez's behavior. Baez has since backtracked. Have a listen.
4: Do you have any regret for either the comments or the gesture themselves? I mean, I didn't mean to offend anybody. This is something that that I've done in the past against the other team. Um, I did it in late to the to the to the dugout. It's it's not like like I, I I might say something wrong about I was booing the fans, and and I really meant like to like boo me now, like and not to the fans to to our dugout because I have done it I done it with the other team against against other team, but like I've never seen it the same like the, the same fans and like I, I didn't say the fans are bad like I love the fans but like <clears throat> I just felt like we were alone like like the fans obviously wants wants to win and, and like they play our salary like like everybody says but like we want to win too like and the frustration got to us and you know I didn't mean to to offend anybody and if I offend anybody you know I, we, we apologize and it, I, I won't I won't lose anything with that you know and like we just try to move forward live this in the back.
1: I didn't mean to offend any of you guys. I like you guys. I love our fans. They're the greatest. But I don't back down from my original point. <laughs> <laughs> but also, I That's... wanted to give
2: you guys the thumbs down.
1: <laughs> yeah, just so you know, yeah, I still kind of feel the same way. But can we make this go away and, and, and hug each other again? Can we do that? Yeah.
2: And uh, the also, we should also note reporting coming out in the last half hour or so that the Mets, they had a team meeting with the manager and everyone, and the players have agreed they will no longer be giving – the thumbs-down gesture. So with the apology, with the team meeting, they're trying to mend some fences with their fan base. But yeah, as you heard from Abby Baez. It's like, yeah, but the fans kind
1: of had it coming, right? Like, that's basically what he's saying there. Should they lean into it more, James? Should they go the other way? Like, when they get booed the next time, should it happen by their own fans? Should they, like, put the hands together, the yeah. thank you sign, and and take a bow and say thank you? Should they lean into it that way, or should they just sit there, <laughs> pretend it doesn't bother them whatsoever? What should they do?
2: do a curtain call, right? You get booed, yeah. you're coming you have a horrible inning where you're booting the ball around and they're booing you coming off the field after it's done and then and then you all do a curtain call and then do a hat tip for the booing fans. I don't think that would go over particularly well either. Something tells me in New York.
1: Yeah, strangely, I agree with you on that. <laughs> now, it seems that most of us agree the PGA shouldn't have had to bring in this rule, that they shouldn't have gone to this length today that they did with, hey, if you call Bryce DeChambeau Brooksy, you can get expelled from the tournament. It seems like trying to kill an ant with a sledgehammer, to quote a good friend of mine. We do agree that something probably needs to change in tennis. I think we agree anyway. The way that you can take breaks is in the spotlight today because late-night match between Andy Murray... And Sitsipas, who is the number three player in the world, he's excellent. He's fantastic. He's one of the young stars of the game. But his behavior has come into question. Jamie, what he does is he takes extended breaks during matches when things aren't going particularly well for him. Whether it's a bathroom break or an extended medical timeout, he flexes that rule to its utmost.
2: Yeah, and it is very, very frustrating because, as you said, he's using it as a ploy. At least this is how it seems like. This is in the opinion of a lot of other players on tour. He uses as uses it as a ploy to slow the momentum of whoever he's facing in the match.
1: So we're talking about a guy who's at or near the top of his game and is on the rise and he was playing a player who is past that point andy murray's trying to reclaim something here late in his career played really well yesterday he was up two sets to one and that's when in his opinion the behavior really began so after the match which citsipas won in five sets andy murray took to the podium and had this to say
6: it's not so much leaving the court it's the amount of time um you know, I spoke to my team before the match about it and said to expect that and prepare for it if things were not going his way um, so I was trying to do that but the issue is is that you cannot stop the the way that that affects you physically, you know when you're playing a, you know, a brutal match like that you know, stopping for 7-8 minutes um you know, you do cool down. And it's, it's you can prepare for it mentally as much as you like, but it's the fact that it does affect you physically when you take a, a break um, that long, at, well, multiple times during the match. And yeah, it's just disappointing, because I feel it influenced the outcome of the match. No, not, not necessarily... I'm not saying I necessarily win that match for sure, but it it had influence on what was happening um, after those breaks. And, you know, I rate him a lot. I think he's a brilliant player, and I think he's great for the game. Um, but I have zero time for that stuff at all, and I lost respect for him.
1: Andy Murray tweeted out today, fact of the day, it takes Stefanos Sitsipas twice as long to go to the bathroom as it takes Jeff Bezos to fly into space. Interesting. So he kind of doubled down on it today. Yep. But, Jamie, there's something to it. Alexander Zverev earlier this month in Cincinnati complained about the same thing in match with the same player. Milos Raonic took to social media in the last 12 hours and said, Andy Murray is right on with this one. This comes to a whole time-wasting issue that we see in other sports as well, and soccer's one that that gets a lot of spotlight in this regard as well. There's a way to do it that's acceptable, and then there's a way that seems to go outside the spirit of it.
2: Yeah, and I think what you heard from Andy Murray there towards the end of the clip was you know, him saying, I lost a lot of respect for the player, and I think that's what it comes down to. Are you showing do respect to your opponent, right? And in soccer, it's almost, it's part of the sport, right? You know the goalkeeper is going to take an awful long time setting up that goal kick when the team is nursing a one goal lead in stoppage time, right? That's just kind of how it goes. And yeah, it's frustrating, but the referee can step in if it goes too far. This seems to be out of bounds in the world of tennis, right? Which is why you have so many big-name players standing up and saying, uh-uh, this isn't, this isn't going to fly. Something's got to change.
1: Yeah, and it always seems to be when things aren't going particularly on well the match. It's obviously a tactic, and there was some question even earlier this month as to whether or not he was receiving, receiving coaching instruction, and that's where Zverev was complaining, and the rule as it stands right now is you can't coach up a player during the match. That's simply not allowed, and yep. Zverev was pointing out that, hey, he went to the bathroom, but he took his entire bag with him, which has his phone in it. His dad's over there in the stands on the phone right now who do you think he's in contact with yeah I
2: mean it's a good argument (laughs) it's a good argument at least to start an investigation with that's for sure
1: well and maybe they just need to amend that part of it as well I know some have called for that in tennis over the hey just let them coach like let the player be coached up whether it's between sets or at at specific times during a match if if they want to get coached why not yeah, and if you, that's the
2: kind of thing, right, where if you change the rule for everyone, it doesn't give anyone a, a distinct advantage. It's just a different thing during the match. And then you don't have these scenarios where people are trying to kind of clandestinely do it uh, to get a, to avoid the rules.
1: Chapeau and Bianca both in action today. Unfortunately, Rebecca Marina was ousted in the opening round yesterday. Felix, Oje, Eliasim, however, did move on in a four-setter tough one needed tie break wins in each of the three sets that he won during the course of his opening round match. He seated 12th in that tournament. Chapo is seated 7th. We will roll on. It is a gold medal Tuesday. We're going to dig into it. Canada USA goes down tonight in Calgary. Marissa and Jamie joins us next right here on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dot.
0: Now back to Rintoul and Sermon.
1: Jamie, this show is 4 hours long. If you get 93.8% of it correctly today, will that feel like a win to you? Sorry, run that percentage by me again? 93.8. If you're almost 94% yeah. today, if that's what you bat on a four-hour show here today, do you say, that's a hell of a show? Scott, I'm, I'm popping champagne if that's the case, if I get up that high. I don't think the Swiss goalkeeper was doing that last night, though. <laughs> she, she stopped 61 shots. 61 of 65 shots. That's a 938 save percentage last night and there was no offense to be found, and her team was obviously overwhelmed by Team Canada at the World Championship semifinal in Calgary. Gold medal game goes tonight, 93.8%. She was that good, Jamie, and there's no champagne popping for her, but she did her job, I'll tell you that. No, it's a, a thin...
2: Thin moral victory for the Swiss goaltender in that one. Again, man, some of the, you know, obviously, like the scores have been impressive in a lot of Canada's games, but almost even more impressive has been the shot clock domination for a lot of them. Like they have just owned the puck in this tournament. Even early in that round robin game against the US, it was more of the same for them.
1: I can't remember which beer company it was. It was American Beer Company. Do you remember the ads that were done a number of years ago where it was an a receiver, so, you know, an alleged receiver who was talking into the mic after a game and basically said, well, I did my job out there today. You know, if they'd targeted me a few more times, we probably would have done this. And, and when the ball was thrown to me, I, I caught it. So I feel like I did my job today after the team had been smashed and the reporter said back to the player, again, it's in a commercial. It was meant to be funny. There isn't an I in team. And he said, there ain't no we either. <laughs> I, I, wonder, I wonder if she went into the, to the dressing room last night and said, guys, I did my job here. You guys need to pull yeah. your socks up a little bit. Help me out a little bit here.
2: Well, I can just imagine going into the locker room after a game like that and just looking around, like, "Hey, why is everyone? Why, why are you guys all sad? I did great. I'm I'm going to be happy. You guys can be sad over there, but I feel great about how I just went out and performed.
1: It was domination by the Canadians. It was less domination, much lesser domination by the U.S. team in a three 0 victory over Finland, which was a Gold medal finalist, silver medalist, in fact, yep. a couple of years ago when Finland upset Canada in the semifinal of the World Championships and played against the States and lost to the States again yesterday. Shot disparity there was 33-14, but while I didn't watch that game in its entirety, did feel like Finland had a few chances to get on the board and just couldn't quite get the puck over the line.
2: Yeah, I mean, Finland has established itself, at least for now, as kind of the third team in this tournament. As you said, it was much a much closer affair than the Canada-Swiss Semifinal, which is which is no surprise. Yeah, they had their chances, weren't able to capitalize on it, though.
1: Canada's Melody Daou, she has been so damn good this tournament. Leads the tournament in scoring. She had two more goals last night. But I'm a sucker for this. I'm a sucker for this. The best part of her Monday and one of the best parts of my day from a sports perspective, seeing her, she had not seen her son in over 40 days, she said she'd lost count of it, and he was at the game in Calgary yesterday, and he came down to the glass, and she was on the ice, and they shared a kiss through the glass. If, if that doesn't get you in the feels, yeah. go see a cardiologist.
2: It's very good. It was fantastic, especially, you know, as you say, she is playing incredible hockey, and then that little, that little moment captured on camera was heartwarming for everyone, I think.
1: Has that line been good enough?
2: Oh my goodness, they've been out of control, man. Sarah woo! what a coming out party for her this tournament has been. I, she was getting the hype before the tournament, and she has lived up to it.
1: Yeah, we brought Haley Salvian of The Athletic on prior to this tournament, previewing it when it got going, and that was the player that she pointed out. Felt like it was going to be a breakout worlds for her. It most certainly has been that. That line has been hot. Canada is not 5-1 better than the United States, by my estimation. That was an off night no. for Americans, a much better night for the Canadians when they met in the round-robin portion of this tournament. This should be a very closely contested final tonight.
2: Yeah, that's certainly my expectation. I was expecting a really close game in the round-robin game as well. I do wonder if you know the fact that the Canadians haven't had a lot of recent success against the Americans made them you know, get up a little bit more for that game than their counterparts on the U.S. team did. We know that won't be the case tonight, though. Both teams are going to be as amped as possible for this one.
1: We will get into it with someone who has covered professional hockey for a very long time, international game for a very long time, Marissa and Jemmy, and she has recently made a move. She's now the Kraken reporter for the Seattle Times as well as being an expert in women's hockey. Marissa, thank you very much for doing this today. How are you?
5: Good, how are you?
1: We are doing very well on what is a gold medal Tuesday, but before we get to that, are you adjusting to the clock okay? You've moved to the West Coast, you've been on the East Coast for your life, so now games are a lot earlier. Like, this game for you on the West Coast will happen at 4.30 in the afternoon today.
5: Yeah, it's weird. Like, I, I, I see this one coming, so it's fine, but it'll be like the middle of the day and I start to see scores and I'm like, why is this happening right now? And I remember, oh yeah, like, that's nighttime over there.
1: How's the move been in general? How are, how are you liking the West Coast? How are you assimilating?
5: I love it here. It's, it's awesome. I love it. I just, like wake up and stuff is already happening. Um, definitely really like it out here in Seattle. Can't wait to go to Vancouver uh, during the season and everything. So, yeah, I absolutely. Uh, I love it out here.
1: Marissa, looking at this tournament so far, it's the final we expected between Canada and the USA. What has the tournament as a whole been? from your vantage point?
5: Yeah, I mean, it's been, I think it's been a really interesting tournament um, on the, the entire international stage. We saw Japan get an impressive win against the Czech Republic. We saw the Czech Republic make some noise as well. Uh, Switzerland um, was a little bit disappointing once they had some injuries. Uh, Finland, obviously, it feels like took a little bit of a step back this tournament. So it's been really interesting to see on an international stage just like what direction uh, the rest of the world is going in because there's been such progress in women's hockey um outside of just the us and the canada um in the past few years obviously finland making it to the gold medal game a couple of years ago so um it was really interesting kind of to see where everybody's at right now heading into the olympics
2: well and, and as you mentioned i think there was a lot of excitement around the women's game when finland was able to make it to the gold medal game in 2019 they can't pull off a repeat performance this year but do you still get the sense that we're seeing a lot of positive progress from you know not only the european countries but as you mentioned japan had a really positive performance as well
5: yeah and i mean by no means has finland been bad um and i think switzerland is really a country on the rise in general i feel like they're really going to uh uh be on the stage for a while um and yeah like you said japan um that went over the czech republic i thought that was just like really cool for the women's game overall because they've never really been on the map in women's hockey. So to see them um, beat a team like the Czech Republic, who I mean, they have some NWHL players, they have some pro players there. Like, that's a really competitive program. So, yeah, I mean, I think that in general, the the way the rest of the world outside North America is really starting to rise in women's hockey, um, I think it's noticeable and I think it's only going to keep getting better.
2: Overall, how would you evaluate the U.S.'s performance at this tournament so far?
5: Yeah, that's a tough one. I guess it, it will be a better answer after tonight to really get a sense. Um, but I feel like, obviously, the game against Canada last week was pretty disappointing. I feel like um, there have been some flaws in the roster. Um, it, it's a new coaching regime with Joel Johnson in there. Um, there have been a bit of a transition as a program in general going into the Olympics, even it being after a gold medal um, four years ago. Uh, there's a lot of young players there. I think Abby Murphy has been a real positive. Um, I think that Abby Rock's not playing as much has been kind of a surprise. Like uh, th- there's a few things there that, I mean, Aaron Frankel hasn't even seen the ice originally, didn't even make the team. So um, there's a few things that they definitely have to get sorted out. The defense has been um, kind of a mess at times. Um, I feel like Megan Keller didn't take a step that they expected her to. So I think that's a lot they need to evaluate heading into the Olympics. But, I mean, if if they end up winning this thing, it won't really matter um, as much any of those losses.
2: You know, you mentioned the disappointing result against Canada in the round robin. I mean, I was really, really surprised. We just don't see games like that, it seems, between those two, two, two teams. They're usually so much closer and so much harder fought. I mean, what specifically, in your opinion, went wrong for the U.S. in that round robin matchup?
5: most of the defense just hasn't been very cohesive and they haven't had a lot of time to really work out that defense since Casey Bellamy retired. I think that kind of caught the program off guard a little bit, but they have the talent there to be really good anyways. Um, It it just really hasn't panned out for whatever reason. And maybe that chemistry continues to get better and it's less of a problem. Um, Obviously like the goaltending, there are some question marks about now as well. Maddie Rooney hasn't been there after she got hurt right before uh, training camp began for, um, uh, four worlds, so uh, it, it's kind of uh, a mess in that Like, are they going to go with Nicole Hensley tonight after she played so well against Finland, getting the shutout? Like, uh, that's really just a big question for them in general. But I think just the defense has really that has to be the thing that when this tournament ends, they have to sit, take a step back and look at and think about how they're going to improve that before the Olympics.
1: Marissa and Jemmy covers both the women's and men's game in detail. She is the Kraken reporter for the Seattle Times as well, and she joins us today on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Before we get to the other side of the equation, which is Canada, this is a question that not only concerns the U.S. and not only concerns Canada, but all of these rosters. The Olympics is not far away. How much opportunity is there if a team feels it underperformed at this tournament or would like to tweak things roster-wise? How much of an opportunity, in your opinion, is there for any of those players not not included in this tournament to find their way onto an Olympic roster?
5: I think it's just a tight squeeze right now because it's coming up. They already have their centralization rosters. Like um, I don't really think there's a ton of room now, especially because worlds are happening much later than they normally do. Usually these are um, a little bit earlier into summer, late spring, and obviously it had to get pushed back and, go to Calgary after it didn't end up happening in Nova Scotia earlier this year. So I feel like there's not that much room at all. Like this is the teams that they have um, if if they want to make any adjustments. I mean, they have a few players in reserve. We saw Aaron Frankel for USA, their third goalie who hasn't been on the ice yet. Uh, Once Maddie Rooney got hurt, they end up taking her to Calgary. So uh, they have a little bit of that. But like other than that, like this is what these teams have.
1: Canada has been the best tournament team so far we'll see if that comes to fruition tonight people on this side of the border certainly hoping so what has impressed you most about the way Canada has played in this tourney
5: yeah I mean you look at the route they put on USA while Polin was out and that and now she's back tonight so that should be um, kind of scary for everyone um, Sarah Fillier I think has been uh, kind of the player of the tournament overall she's really had an impact playing with Natalie uh, Spooner especially like that's been a really impressive line but yeah, I just think Canada and U.S. are both kind of in a transition period with those young players. Like, they have a lot of uh, talented players who we've seen um, on the international stage for a while getting ready for their first Olympics, though. And I think so far, Canada's definitely had the edge there because of players like Philier.
2: You know, you mentioned that line specifically of Fillier with Spooner and Daou as well. What has made that line click so well together and have so much success so far in this tournament?
5: Uh, they've just been fantastic all together. I mean, I think it kind of starts with Philly. I, honestly, she's been terrific winning face-offs, getting um, possession for that line. And everyone's really varying. All three of them are in the top ten for uh, goals in the tournament, I think for points as well. Um, they've been the most dominant line out there. And I don't know if that'll be the case uh, when the Olympics began. But so far, it's been um, definitely a godsend for Canada, who... Uh, every time Poulin's been out their offense, they've had to figure out what to do. And this goes back to a couple of years ago when she was out during Worlds back when Finland went to the gold medal game instead. Um, so I think it's really good for them to have uh, this kind of depth and these kind of options there. But yeah, definitely that line has been a standout um, across the entire tournament for every team.
2: And you know, Marissa, you talked about how both the U.S. and the Canadian program right now maybe in a little bit of a transitional stage where they're trying to integrate some some young, up-and-coming, exciting players do you get the sense that Canada might have almost, you know, kickstarted that process into gear a little more quickly because they were struggling against the U.S. in recent years, right? Maybe they felt a little more sense of urgency to start that transition to a new crop of players than the U.S. did.
5: Yeah, and I mean, I think some of the U.S.A. retirements came a little late. Like Megan Duggan came pretty early um, in this Olympic cycle, but Delamaru's were just like I think at the end or earlier this year um Casey Bellamy that really uh just kind of happened really um uh really recently so I feel like USA hasn't really had time to like figure out what they want to do and they had like an entire coaching uh regime change too so they've just been a little bit behind the process but definitely when you come out of the Olympics with silver instead of gold you're going to have a little more urgency to get on that stage Canada also they didn't get to the gold medal game in world two years ago so they've definitely been uh playing catch up for a little bit longer um, than the U.S. has. So they're probably just a little bit ahead in the process because of that. And like you mentioned, the um, recent retirements from USA, there hasn't been a ton of time to figure out how they're going to replace those players.
1: Marissa, as you mentioned earlier in this conversation, this event is much closer than to the Olympics than it normally is, and it comes at a very strange time when last year's Worlds were canceled, obviously, and this tournament was pushed back. Not that it has any less relevance, but do you think that some of the organizations and perhaps some of the players view it as an Olympic tune-up of sorts as opposed to the way it normally is viewed within the sport
5: yeah I mean especially since this is the only um international women's hockey event that there's been for these players in two years like they have the four nations cup didn't happen like none of the uh, the uh, scrimmages USA Canada usually has like a, a little scrimmage tour going on um They had a rivalry series um, the last few years before the pandemic began. Um, So they really, I mean, and they've barely been on the ice. Like none of these players, other than like a few in the Czech Republic, are in the NWHL and the PWHPA had such a short schedule this year, especially in Canada. They played for like five days all year. Um, So like they really haven't been on the ice all that much in the past couple of years. So like this is kind of the only opportunity and it being on the most intense scale um, aside from the Olympics, like, Uh, It's an opportunity in some senses, but also a spot that none of these players have really been in before.
2: And, And Marissa, you know, it seems like every time the Olympics roll around, we talk about how important it is for the women's game to get that spotlight spotlight and introduce it to new fans, specifically going into this Olympic year where it's in China. And, you know, we all understand the potential that if China really invests in the sport, what that could mean for the sport around the world. Again, we hear it every Olympic year, but does it seem especially important to put the women's game in the spotlight at these Olympics?
5: Yeah, and especially because, I mean, women's hockey has been taking off um, for the past few years. I feel like last Olympic cycle, that was the most interest around a sport I've ever seen. Um, You have both pro leagues in North America growing. You have more attention on them than ever. Obviously, China's invested in women's hockey before they had the two teams in the CWHL. They're now involved in the KHL. Um, some really good players have played have played there, like Alex Carpenter is a part of that program. Um, and she's on Team USA. So, like, a lot of really good players um, in North America have played in China, have been a part of that process. So, yeah, this is, um for from an international state perspective, like, these Olympics are definitely in a unique spot for women's hockey.
1: As mentioned on multiple occasions, Marisha and Jimmy also covers the – cracking down in seattle now as that franchise gets ready for its inaugural season she does so for the seattle times she joins us today on rental and sermon with jamie dodd we haven't had an opportunity to get your impressions of what has been formed so far and what they're doing training camp is just around the corner down in the emerald city what do you make of what ron francis and company have put together so far
5: yeah i mean it's an interesting roster i still feel like they're like one really good forward away from being a, a really competitive team i think that's they're a playoff team in the division that you're in. They have a lot of players. I think they're banking on like hitting their ceilings. Like Colin Blackwell could have a breakout year after he was really good with the Rangers. Brandon Tanev, uh, Jared McCann, guys like that are all guys who could hit their ceiling in Seattle. They have a really strong defense. They have a uh, business finalist goaltender. So, um, Overall, you can see that they have a direction in mind. Um, They're not making moves just for the heck of it, for the most part. This is a team that really, um, they know what they want their identity to be. Like I said, I I feel like they're a piece or two away at forward, especially while Yanni Gord is out early um, until November. Um, But I I think they're going to be a pretty competitive team, and there's a lot of hype around here for them. It's been really cool to see.
1: Ron Francis' old team, as you well know, put together a pretty creative offer sheet, and the way that they're approaching this is different than most teams have approached offer sheets in the past with the Asperi, cock, and Yemi. We all wondered with the innovative approach Seattle has taken building its organization, just how creative it would be in the selection process, free agency, all of it. Are you underwhelmed to a certain degree? Because I've, I've certainly had that sense from the outside. Underwhelmed at the lack of creativity from a hockey standpoint we've seen so far.
5: The only thing that I would say underwhelmed to me is around uh, the expansion draft. I thought there might be a few more side deals or a few more trades. But um, if anything, I've been kind of impressed how dedicated they've been to sticking to their approach. They haven't been very reactive. Um, they've really stuck to everything they've wanted to do. Um, And I think that that creativity is going to start to come out once they have a few more options. Um, There's still room to make a trade before training camp or out of training camp. Um, Trade deadline, they have some pieces where they can acquire more players. I think next offseason where there's a few more answers um, around the league just with salary cap stuff and um, just, just getting out of kind of this flat cap situation And a few better free agents I think we're going to see them really uh, start to flourish, uh, making moves like after the season.
2: Well, and and it does seem like Ron Francis really decided and the entire hockey operations department there in Seattle decided to take more of a long-term view. Because I think there was a lot of pressure on Seattle to try to kind of replicate what Vegas did in its inaugural campaign. But this seems to be, as you're saying, more of a patient, long-term approach that they're taking in Seattle.
5: Yeah, they don't want to just come in and be a flash in the pan one year and then all their guys are free agents or they have, like, all this money dedicated to a few players and not much wiggle room. Um, I I think they kind of recognize uh, what Vegas did. That doesn't really happen. Uh, They're not trying to be Vegas. They're trying to be themselves. And, uh, I mean, again, with the team they have right now, they're still going to be probably a top three team, the division they're in, and I think they recognize that. So there was no reason to overreact or dedicate too much money um, and put themselves in spot a few years down the road uh, I think that everyone in Seattle realizes that what Vegas did shouldn't be the goal as much as uh, building just a sustainable hockey brand in Seattle
2: you mentioned Colin Blackwell as a player that could surprise some people this year with Seattle is there another person you know at the bottom end of the roster that maybe you think people are all overlooking and could really have a breakout season with the Kraken
5: Uh, I'm really interested to see what kind of a step Jared McCann takes. I wrote about him the other day, and he's really been trending upward his last few years uh, with the Penguins, and he's a guy who's really good on the power play, and they kind of need um, that power play guy, um, especially um, someone as versatile as he is. So I think that he's someone that could surprise some people because not exactly, like, a huge name. Um, Like you mentioned, um, Blackwell as well, and I think uh, Donskoy from Colorado too, I think, they kind of had their pick from Colorado. They were going to get a good player and they go with him and they have um, a solid forward who um, his career is on the rise as well. So they have a lot of guys like that who like, I think it's kind of um, a little bit risky to have so many guys where you're like, well, if he hits the ceiling, they'll be really good. But they have so many of them that you have to imagine that a few of them really do.
1: We've had you on our show on multiple occasions. I'm not sure how familiar you are with the Canucks fan base or Canucks Twitter. I can tell you this. If Jared McCann lights it up, it will probably be talked about more in Vancouver than it is in Seattle.
5: <laughs> I believe that, knowing the uh, knowing the Canucks fan base. I fully believe that.
1: Marissa, thank you very much. I always appreciate the insight you bring to our program when we have you on. Again, that is the case today. I wish you the best, and we'll do this again soon. Enjoy the gold medal game this afternoon.
5: Yeah, thank you guys so much.
1: That is Marissa and Jemmy. She covers the Kraken for the Seattle Times. She has long been a voice in the women's game as well. She has worked for many outfits, including Sportsnet. In the past, full disclosure, she has written for Sportsnet.ca, covered the NWHL and some terrific insight into the tournament that has been to date and what we are looking forward to this afternoon in Calgary.
2: I, I did love – I'm glad you brought it up as well. I loved the Jared McCann uh, mention oh, there yeah. at the end of the interview. And, you know, I wasn't I wasn't asking it purposely for that reason, but I did – I you know, I follow Marissa on Twitter, obviously. I keep up with her work. She had written a profile on Jared McCann earlier this week or, or over the weekend. So I thought it was a possibility that Jared
1: McCann's name might come up and catch the interest of Canucks fans. Like if Mark Giordano does well with Seattle next year or this coming season, I should say, no one will be terribly surprised – and no. you see what role he could play on that team. Like, nobody will be terribly surprised by that. And he's back in Calgary this week for the golf tournament. And, and we're seeing clips from Mark Giordano. No one will be terrible. If Jared McCann is the leading scorer and is on this tear, that will be viewed much differently in Vancouver than Geo's success would be viewed in Calgary.
2: Yeah, which is funny in a sense. I mean, one, because I think Geo is more of a beloved figure, right? So, okay, look, we get it. It was the right thing. He had to move on. But we're always going to be happy if he's having success somewhere it is funny, though, with Jared McCann. I mean, this is his third team since leaving the Canucks, right? So it's not even as if, you know, it's a pure revenge situation where you you let him go to Seattle and then he comes back to haunt your team, right? There's been a lot of stops along the way, but yes, it will be a major, major storyline here in Vancouver if Jared McCann really pops for the Kraken this year.
1: Ah, Jamie, technically four teams. He was a Leaf for a few minutes. Yes,
2: that's a great point. That's a very good point. How could I forget the
1: Jared McCann era in Toronto? Yeah, the one that got away from Toronto. That's how they'll view it, certainly, (laughs) in Leafland. It's Scott Rintual. It's Jamie Dodd as we make the turn into the second half of the program. The big story in sports North America-wise today. Cam Newton released by the Patriots. That and much more NFL talk coming your way next with Doug Farrar of USA Today on Rintual and Sermon with Jamie Dodd.